Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jack Lakey, better known as The Fixer, in his regular column for Canada's number one newspaper, The Toronto Star. Got a problem with public services in your GTA neighborhood? The Fixer is here to help. Jack listens to your problems with the city, investigates and documents the issues at hand, brings them directly to the people who can affect change, and then updates his readers on the latest status. But Jack is more than just a fixer, and his Twitter bio says it best. He is a newspaper reporter, husband, hockey dad, poker player, and victim of horse racing. He has also just begun writing casino content for North Star Bets, whose CEO, Michael Moskowitz, was also recently a guest on this same podcast. Welcome, Jack Lakey, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm very well, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, I'm at home in uh, the Guildwood area of Scarborough, and uh, life is good down here along the lake. Excellent. How was your summer? Are you back into the swing of things as fall rolls around? I don't know how how much in the swing of things I am yet, but I sure had a great summer. And uh, the only my only regret is it uh, it's September. <laughs> yeah, the seasons have changed. How long have you lived in the Guildwood area? Since 1994, uh, my wife and I lived downtown before that, uh, okay. going back to 1988. And uh, and we started looking for a house in 94 because uh, that was the last time you could get a deal uh, on houses in Toronto. And there had been an extended recession. And we started looking for a house in the win- early 94. And we started, we, we looked in the beaches. We thought it was overpriced. We looked along the bluffs and we sort of made our way out further along the bluffs and eventually we got to Guildwood and realized that you can still get a bit of property and uh, and uh, and bricks and mortar here for your money and so we've been here happily ever since. Excellent. Well, with your permission, we're going to go all the way back and get the Jack Lakey story. Where were you born and tell us about your upbringing? I was born in Hamilton and... Uh, I grew up in two little towns uh, down around Lake Erie, one Jarvis, Ontario, which is on Highway 6, about a thousand people when I was there. It said uh, the, the little sign said Pop 980 for Jarvis. So, And Port Dover, which a lot more people have probably heard of down on Lake Erie, which is eight miles from Jarvis. And uh, so I grew up in those two towns and uh, it had quite an exhilarating youth. Uh, and. Uh, and eventually came to Toronto uh, in 1979 to go to journalism school at Ryerson and been here ever since. Back home when you were growing up, Jack, did you have siblings and, and what did your parents do? Uh, my dad was a truck driver. Uh, my mother was a uh, worked at stores, you know, store clerk, that sort of thing. And I had three siblings and uh, and I'm the oldest. Okay, so it must have been a big deal when you left 
to come to Toronto to go to Ryerson. Was that a culture shock for you to go to that city uh, school? It, it, it was, uh, but I always had the sense that, you know, I belonged somewhere else other than uh, uh, I, I needed uh, a bigger horizon than, uh, than the little towns that I came from. And, uh, and I can tell you that, uh, that I've never regretted for a minute leaving. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there's not a whole lot for me in places like that. Now, Ryerson, as you know, has recently been rebranded as TMU, Toronto Metropolitan yes. University. What do you remember about your school days and the Ryerson experience? Well, uh, uh, one of the things that I really learned a lot about was uh, where to buy this and that in the Eaton Centre. Yep. Uh, where the best slice of pizza could be had. There was a place called the Big Slice on Young, just on the north side of Young, just uh, south of Girard. Uh, those are the kind of lessons I learned at Ryerson. <laughs> One of the things that I understood uh, at Ryerson, especially after I actually got into the business, was how ill-prepared Ryerson made me for journalism. Hmm. And uh, Ryerson, I found, uh, they certainly we had good instructors. They taught you well. But... Uh, you know, Ryerson was, it was more a foot in the door. I, I came to figure out, and maybe this is why I chose journalism, that it was an imprecise profession where you could, uh, where you could wing it. And uh, it's not like, uh, it, you know, I wanted to be a pharmacist or something. And it was very defined uh, and structured uh, uh, learning curve that led to your ability to prepare concoctions. Journalism's not like that. You either got it or you don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, I, I, I deluded myself that I had it, and uh, eventually I got there. Uh, you know, like you, you may have heard, uh, "fake it till you make it." Well, that's yeah. basically what I did. What was your? Do you remember your first job after you graduated, Ryerson? Yes, sir. Do I ever? Um, I got a job. Uh, I, I I was finished Ryerson in the spring of 1982. And I got a job at a little horse racing magazine because, as I mentioned, I'm a victim of horse racing. It <laughs> yeah. called called a thoroughbred horse racing magazine called the Canadian Horse Magazine. And, uh, and it, was, uh, uh, it was a good place to start, uh, not a good place to stay. I was there for, I don't know, maybe six months or so. And the woman that owned the magazine and myself agreed that I wasn't a good fit. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so I left there, but I very promptly got a, a, a job as what they call a chart caller. Uh, at Woodbine Racetrack, a chart caller. If you've ever seen a daily racing form and that, that what for outsiders would see that incomprehensible jumble of information on a newspaper sized page that, that amounts to a whole bunch of numbers. Uh, well, basically those are each, each individual left to right line is, is what you call a running line. And it shows where the horse, horse, horse was that you're looking at at various points of call around the racetrack, depending on the distance raced. Anyway, I created and compiled all that information. And I did that for, for an outfit called Sportseye uh, in uh, Long Island, New York. Sportseye had uh, assigned itself the ambitious task of taking on the daily racing form, which had existed since the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. And uh, sorry about the cat. She's hunting. Okay. She's hunting right now. We've got we've got cats, and one of them's a big hunter because we have little you know little toy mice, and she gets jumped up about them. But anyway, <coughs> excuse me. Um, the uh, uh, the the great part about doing that job was it allowed me to bet every race every day. Uh, 
uh, which is a recipe for disaster, actually. But uh, but uh, but it certainly scratches the action itch. Yes. And uh, and also uh, because I worked in the press box at Woodbine, the old Greenwood racetrack, which is uh, now where the the at uh, Coxwell and Queen downtown, which was a wonderful place. Yeah. And uh, Fort, Fort Erie racetrack in the summer. Uh, but uh, I, because I worked in the press box, it allowed me to make connections with other people in media, uh, including people at the Toronto Star. And uh, so I did that until the summer of 1985. And uh, and then uh, the Racing Forum, recognizing the danger that this company, Sportseye, presented to them, because Sportseye was amassing and creating past performance lines, so, which they could sell to individual racetracks that could print their own program and offer their fans a much cheaper and pretty much just as good alternative to the daily racing form, which was very expensive. So racing form recognized the danger to their business and they bought out Sportseye and that was the end of my job because they had their own chart color at Woodmine. I met people from the star and uh, then my job ended in the summer of uh, 85 after Sportseye was bought out. and. Uh, a friend of mine, an older man, who was also a friend of the managing editor at the Star, who was a big racing guy named Ray Timpson, uh, urged me to get in touch with Ray and ask for a job. And uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm working at the racetrack. He's not going to hire me. There's eminently more qualified people than I, than I am. And so, uh, but he, he rode me mercilessly. So finally, I asked for a job. And Ray said, well, I don't have anything for you now, but I might be able to get you into our summer intern program next spring. And eventually that happened. And I can thank the old fellow that I'm telling you about. His name was Harry Tutty. And he was a, he was a, sports, uh, a sportsman about town uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s even. But Harry at the other end was working Ray, saying, you got to hire this kid. And so anyway, I was given a chance on the uh, summer intern program at the Star in 1986, and I managed to stick around. And after this summer intern program, you stuck around at the Star. What various capacities did you have before you became the fixer? Well, I was a general assignment reporter for uh, a few years. Uh, then in a couple of years, I, I, I uh, well, what happened is this, is I, after the summer program, they had 15 interns and only three jobs. One of the people that was going to get a job was a guy named Paul Watson, who had been to Columbia Journalism School and went on to win the only one of the only Canadians to ever win a Pulitzer. Mm. Uh, he's the guy that took the photo of the Somalian soldier being dragged through the streets uh, that became the basis for the Black Hawk Down movie. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that, that, that photo ran on page one of every, uh, through wire service, of every paper in the United States and the star ran it on page two. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Paul was going to get one job. Uh, the sports editor's son was going to get another. Okay. And, and, uh, and, and even by then they understood that they have to be, do things differently in terms of employing women. So a woman was going to get the third job. Okay. But in the meantime, the managing editor arranged for a job for me and another guy who was on the intern program at the Winnipeg free press. So I went out there and I worked for about 18 months. And then I got back to the Star in the spring of 1988, late winter. And uh, I've been there ever since, basically. And let's talk about your role as The Fixer. In your words, Jack, what is The Fixer column at the Toronto Star? Well, 
just I'll back you up a little. Uh, uh, sure. Back in uh, 2004, I had, for the eight years prior to that, I had worked at the Star City Hall Bureau. And uh, aside from uh, doing my share of the daily uh, workload in terms of reporting on committees and the day-to-day stuff that happens at City Hall, I did a lot of investigative reporting and, uh, and was pretty effective at that. And without going into, you know, the cut and thrust of it, uh, I was so effective at it that uh, I caused a lot of discomfort for people. This was when Mel Lastman was mayor. Okay. I, I did stories that caused a lot of discomfort for people. And I was even warned about the discomfort that I was causing. Mm. I didn't listen, of course. And anyway, uh, eventually, uh, those kind of stories and pushback from people got me rode out of City Hall by the star. And uh, this was in the winter of 2004. And I was at uh, loose ends for several months. They said, well, you could be some kind of feature writer. And I didn't like the sounds of that too much. And... And uh, then I was called into the city editor's office one day after a few months. And he said that the managing editor at the time had been to a newspaper conference in San Francisco. And she had um, seen a, 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 a feature in the San Francisco Chronicle whereby they dealt with a, a little problem that was basically a, a city responsibility every day. The guy who was talking to me about this said, you know, it could be about a pothole, it could be about a burned out street light or broken park bench. And it took all my, uh, my self-control not to dive across the guy's desk and strangle him because <laughs> I had done pretty serious investigative stuff for eight years at City Hall. Now he's suggesting I do a daily column or that we consider a daily column about broken park benches and burnout yeah, street lights. Holes. And so, um, so anyway, I was, uh, but I, I wasn't in a position to, uh, I, I wasn't in a position of strength at that time. And, and I wasn't in a position to bargain. And he said we, that the managing editor at the time, a woman named Mary Deanne Shears would really like a column, some version of a column like this in the star. And we want you to put together a, 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 a note on how we could achieve that. So he said, why don't you call San Francisco, he said, and figure out if they're doing it at other American papers, and they were, there was a few others at that time. Call them, ask them what they do, ask them what kind of resources they put into it, and work us up a note on, you know, on on what you found out, and that way we can make a decision on whether we want to do this or not. And by the way, he said, you won't get any resources. Hmm. So I said, uh, okay then. And uh, so I called these, I know I, 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 at least I'm going to do the note for them. And so I called around and talked to them and what kind of resources they were putting into it. And then I set about to craft a very careful, upbeat note that killed this idea. Okay. Uh, and, I, and I played on the idea, the, 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 uh, I played on being told that the star wasn't going to put any resources into it. I said, well, this is what they do here. And. And, you know, they, they have uh, two people that actually, you know, one person that deals with the public. And anyway, and so I put this note together and I, I basically posed open questions. How, how uh, you know, how much do you want to, how much resources do you want to put into it? Because mm-hmm. he said that we're not putting any resources into it. Well, then I, I, this should kill it. So I, I wrote the note, was very upbeat, positive, but raised these questions. And, uh, and I sent it off. I said, there, that'll be the end of that. And they called me in two weeks later and said, 
we want you to do this thing for a year at least. If you would do it for a year and you don't want to keep doing it, we want to go ahead with this. And, and if you'll do it for a year, uh, that would be great. And, and then you can do something else and uh, you can have whatever you want in terms of resources. So they come mm. under, and that, that sunk, my heart sunk when they said, you can have whatever you want. They, so at, at, at that time, the star still had staff and resources. Yeah. And it was 2004. So they assigned me an editorial assistant to deal with the public because we would take phone calls in from the public. Yeah. She'd, she'd speak to everybody. She'd return every note. Wow. There would be a, there would be a reply, a personal reply to every note that, that came in, every email. And, uh, and then I said, well, what about photos? I said, are you going to assign me a photographer? No, we're not going to do that. They said, we're going to give you a sure shot camera. You're going to take your own photos. Hmm. And, uh, and, and I, I understood instantly what that meant. What it meant was at this back then, the star had a designation uh, in terms of the union contract called two-way. And it meant uh, the small select group of reporters who were also skilled photographers, of which I was not. Hmm. Uh, but uh, you got a 10% pay premium. You got a company car. You got a gas card. And uh, I said, wow, you know, that's, those are big perks. And, <laughs> yep. uh, and so anyway, uh, so I gave it a try and, and it was an instant success uh, with the readers uh, because the star, the stars carved out its brand and position, if you like, on uh, advocacy for the little guy. And uh, basically I was advocating for readers with small problems uh, with municipal infrastructure and, and delivery of services, and also government agencies like the TTC or a school board or something like that. And, uh, and so anyway, it, it, it instantly connected with the readers because it was, it was very much uh, on, on, on message, I guess you could say, with the star's branding and, and, and its traditional role as an advocate. And so anyway, it, it took off instantly. And all of a sudden, the same guys that uh, um, that uh, were not my best friends were all high fives and, and uh, well, isn't this great? And look how this is going. And and I remember the, the ombudsman at the time told me that once a year he would have to go and meet with the star tour star board of directors and give them a you know an overview of uh, what he'd done. Mm -hmm. And uh, he told me after the first year of the fixer that when he went to the director's meeting, they said, yeah, yeah, what about this fixer thing? And, uh, and, and the guy's name was Don Seller. He said, yeah, I think it's great. And he explained why. And, and he said that, that the directors all started harumphing and saying, yeah, yeah, my wife loves it. And, uh, and so anyway, it was like all the way up to the board of directors. It was very popular. And what I figured out pretty quickly was that I had the best job at the paper. Yep. And and uh, and it reminded me of a situation when I was a kid, I got a job at the pickle factory in Waterford, Ontario, where they can pickle seasonal canning factory. When they hired me, they said, kid, you're going to be the garbage man. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're going to give you this cart and two big plastic barrels. And you're going to go around to all the garbage cans where they have the pickle chips and you're going to empty them into your two barrels so that they're, the other ones are clear. And then you're going to take them out to the loading dock and, and dump them. Well, I was just ashamed to be garbage man until I figured out I had the best job in the place because it was nice and cool out there at yeah. night. The place, I worked overnights. The place uh, was 110 degrees because it was all 1930s vintage canning equipment. And uh, and I could goof off and loaf out there. And, I, and all I did was ever just trip around the, the, uh, the plant 
the pickle factory with my little cart. Yeah. And, and, and that's what the fixer felt like. I realized I had this great job where as long as I produced a column every day and a picture, nobody much cared how I did it. They gave me a car and, and, uh, and a gas card and uh, more money. And, uh, and I said, well, what's wrong with this? And, uh, and then eventually, uh, we had regime changes. We often did back then at the star and then new guys came along and then still new guys came along over the past, over the first few years. And, uh, and eventually, one day, I was sitting in the I still had an office, or I mean a, a desk in the newsroom. And I'm sitting in the newsroom one day, and I see the new city editor looking at me. And he's looking at me hard like this. And uh, finally, I, I, I look back at him, and I give him a little wave. And he just keeps looking at me. And I give him another little wave, and he just keeps looking at me. And then I realize, he's not looking at me. He's looking right through me. He doesn't even see me. Mm-hmm. And so... I said, nobody cares if I'm, if I'm here or not, as long as I produce a column. So I went to the IT people. I said, can you guys give me a laptop? They said, sure. So I just started to kind of ease myself out of the newsroom now. Nobody yep. said you can work from home. I just kind of did it. And nobody said anything. And then, and then and it was all good. And nobody, nobody noticed. <laughs> and then finally, one day, the same city editor calls me up. And he says, Jack, he's a Brit. He says, Jack, he said, you don't really work in the newsroom anymore, do you? I said, no. He says, would you be offended if we asked you to pack up your stuff and we gave your desk to somebody else? And I said, oh, let me think that over. And <laughs> I, said, I thought it over. Yeah, I thought it over for five seconds or so. And I said, yeah, I want to play ball with you guys. So, yeah, go ahead. So that completely remove me from the newsroom now so I'm working entirely at home on my own time and uh, and the hardest part of the job was of course driving out and around the city because I was doing five columns a week when I was a staff reporter oh wow and uh, one at one a day and at one point I was doing five a weekend one video fixer because the star was on a video kick for a while yeah was long since subsided but anyway uh, you know I realized that as I got better at doing it and I had help in the form of, a, of an editorial assistant to deal with the public so I could just be the reporter, uh, I realized that uh, that uh, even more did I have the best job in the place because nobody cared where, when or how I worked. And, and, and as I got more efficient, I probably didn't need a work, a standard work week at the start it was five, seven hour days. I didn't, I probably needed more like 20 to 25 hours yep. to produce five fixers. So I was working even less and especially compared to my, uh, my, my hard work at City Hall, and uh, and uh, and it was still very very popular with the management and the readers. So you know, I I could do no wrong. And uh, and at the time, my son was a big hockey player, mm-hmm. and it allowed me to be a good hockey dad. He was uh, he'd be in uh, we, we as I said we live along the bluffs in Scarborough. He'd be uh, at a, a semi private skate at uh, the Chesswood Arena at Shepherd and uh, Allen for uh, four o'clock and I could pick him up, you know, 20 minutes early from school and get him over there and uh, drive him around to hockey games. He, you know, he was, he was always playing hockey often for two teams at once. And uh, so it allowed me to be a good hockey dad. And that's why my profile said hockey dad. And he's not in hockey anymore because he's almost 23 now. But, uh, but anyway, it just, it was just such a good fit and it was such a good job. 
uh, and, uh, and, and as time go, went on, I realized that I really did like the garbage man at the pickle factory. Yeah. I had, I had a really good job. You were ahead of the curve, Jack. You were ahead before COVID and everything, before we all learned about working from home. Right. You uh, learned that that was the best way. Yes. I want to jump right in and talk about some classic fixer headlines, which I would like to subtitle, You Can't Make This Stuff Up. Okay. The first fixer headline is super fresh. In fact, it's ripped from today's Toronto Star. When 13 street trees in a row died, Loblaws removed them. What replaced them was beyond ridiculous. If I may set this up for you, Jack, Loblaws opened a store years ago on the north side of DuPont, just east of Christie. 13 trees on the DuPont sidewalk right in front of the store subsequently died and were removed, while the 13 sidewalk cutouts that house these trees remained. I guess they became tripping hazards, but instead of replacing the trees, they were instead replaced by 13 huge bright yellow hazard signs drilled right into the sidewalk one in front of each sidewalk cutout. A resident reaches out to you, the fixer, and you do your investigation. Jack, take it away. Well, um, the as I pointed out in the column, the, the, the city's really big on increasing its tree canopy, and, and a component of that is what they call street trees. Street trees typically are planted in uh, cutouts in the sidewalk, uh, and the cutout, which can only maybe be a foot square or so in, in a lot of cases, uh, that's what allows uh, uh, moisture and oxygen uh, into the uh, root system of the tree, but they don't work very well. And because the, the, the ground, if you like, under the sidewalk is often compacted, it doesn't transmit the air and oxygen to the roots very well, and trees often die. In fact, uh, this number may be somewhat adjusted now, but there was a time uh, I recall the city telling me that the average life of a street tree is just five years. Mm-hmm. Now the city has a, they've done a lot of things to mitigate that, and and but not in this particular uh, instance. And I'll get to that. But one of the ways they mitigate it is they create a trench under the sidewalk, a contiguous trench. If they have thirteen trees in a row, they have a trench that's deeper and wider, has looser soil in it, allows the oxygen and moisture to convey better. And, uh, and trees are more likely to survive under those circumstances. But of course, it's much more expensive. Now, in the case of, of Loblaws, what surprised me was this, is that the sidewalk is quite wide uh, in front of the Loblaws store on DuPont Street, the north side of DuPont, just east of Christie. And, uh, and most, in most cases, most if not all of the sidewalk falls within what they call the municipal road allowance. The municipal road allowance is what... Um, um, is the city property, if you like, and it usually extends from the outer edge of one sidewalk to the outer edge of the other, includes the roadway and, and often boulevard in between. Anyway, I looked this over and I said, well, how could this happen? Because that appears to fall within the, the municipal road allowance, and, uh, and I'm surprised the city would allow this. And so I got in touch with the city and they said, well, we didn't do it. It's on private property. So mm-hmm. the road allowance, uh, if you like, ended at... Uh, at the point where not not just just outside of where the tree cutouts were and so that meant it was Loblaws and so I got in touch with Loblaws and in uh, Loblaws of course they they uh, nobody wants to look bad that's part of why the fixers effective nobody wants to look bad in the star it still has in spite of its reduced circumstances it still has a very broad reach and it still has a lot of readers it's just they're online and the star can't monetize them as well but anyway so 
So Loblaw said, we will, uh, we're looking at replacing the trees next year. I'm, I'm guessing they probably weren't till I got in touch with them. They thought the <laughs> yeah, signs were too. okay. And because, it, you know, I was, I also thought it's okay if you don't want to replace the trees, maybe you could go to plan B and just replace the cutout with a flat sidewalk square since it's your property anyway, <laughs> Yes, part of the sidewalk. So that's typically the kind of thing I do on a day-to-day basis. Well, it was an interesting one because it took a resident to bring it up. And then, as you say, you looked into it. The city says not their problem. Loblaws, I agree, was probably from your investigation. We'll get to it sometime in 2023. I'm no arborist, but I am not sure how the 13 new trees are eventually going to be replanted and survive unless they follow your uh, advice to maybe get a little more involved. But you can't make this stuff up. I want to give you classic fixer headline number two, Jack. When is a public square not a public square? When Toronto police decide to barricade it, and possibly forever. All 55, yeah. The subheading to this was people are, the police are always able to come up with reasons why the open area in front of 52 Division should be police parking or whatever. Two decades after concerns were first raised about cop cruisers clogging up what's supposed to be public space outside Toronto Police's 52 Division and restricting public access, the embattled city square at 255 Dundas Street West, that's at St. Patrick Street, has once again been transformed into a private parking lot for police cruisers. Barricades are once again pushing the public away with no end in sight. The fixer investigated. Jack, please take it from there. Well, uh, I, I would back up a bit. I, I did a story a few years prior to that about the same problem at 55 Division, or sorry, 52. And... Uh, and they had been using the square in uh, between the building and the sidewalk on the south side of Dundas, uh, just east of McCall, uh, for parking. And uh, people were complaining because when when uh, when the 52 station was built, there was always it was intended that the area between the sidewalk and it's quite a wide area. And and although it's 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 concrete, uh, it had benches and 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 I think maybe some couple of picnic tables at one time, this kind of thing. But it was meant for people to be able to to, uh, to access it and to use it as public space, even though I would hardly describe it as park-like. Mm-hmm, uh, true. But, uh, but anyway, they were doing some repairs. They have underground parking, and they were doing repairs under uh, the 52 station to the underground parking, and they started it. They had co-opted the, uh, the square as parking space in lieu of the underground parking. And so anyway, people eventually complained and I talked to the police then and they said, well, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to finish up downstairs and then, then it'll be reopened. Well, it did reopen and, uh, but it wasn't long before they were using it for parking again. And, and I think I wrote that again a second time, then they stopped and then they started doing it again. And, uh, and of course people, I remember I was, I was taking photos and uh, I remember seeing listening to people as they walked by and saying, why, why did they barricade all that? Because at the time they were, they had it barricaded, but nobody was parking in it. It was just like, stay out of here. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the reason I took an interest in it uh, more than once is because it sort of conveyed this attitude on the part, a, a perception at least on the part of police that we can do what we want. And if you don't, you know, we can, we can close this space and we can use it or not use it as we see fit. And if you don't like it too bad, Yep. And I still think that's more or less the 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 uh, modus operandi of the police at uh, 52. 
But again, uh, the stories managed to uh, persuade them to reopen the square. And, and as far as I know, it's still reopened now. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, you, when it comes to the police, you've, you've, you have a formidable um, uh, opponent, I guess you yes. could say. Well, like you say, until the next time, because you certainly conveyed that sense, Jack, about they claimed it was on. Are you going to ask me? Are you going to ask me uh, uh, about uh, the? I'm hoping you will uh, uh, the, about the column I did last spring on the uh, person who had the uh, the uh, ambulance or the fire truck, sorry, coming to the apartment ten times a day. Please go ahead with that. You one. Are, you were going to ask me I about that. Have, I, you have so many, Jack, that I had, I had to cut them off somewhere. But please talk about okay. that one. That that's one of that's one of the better ones. I've last uh, I don't know maybe March. I got a note from a fellow who uh, uh, is a, m- a member of the Toronto Fire Service. And he said, you know, uh, our trucks are going many times a day to the same uh, North York address. It's a seniors building operated by the city, Toronto Housing uh, Corporation. And at that address is a woman who uh, is bedridden with uh, medical difficulties, a, a woman in her, I believe, 60s, early to mid 60s. Many times a day, she has help in the daytime for her uh, medical problems, but once that help leaves her the day, she's more or less on her own. And this woman uh, is calling 911 constantly and asking uh, and saying uh, things like, I'm slipping out of bed. And so they would dispatch a fire truck. and. Uh, a, a, a crew captain and three firemen on the truck and they would go there and, and then when they get there they find out according to the firemen that the woman instead wasn't slipping out of bed but wanted help with little personal things like can you fluff my pillow so I oh can boy. sit up straighter uh, can you can you can you get some ice for me in my glass oh boy. and, and uh, and very uh, minor things that, while legitimate requests, certainly weren't up to the fire department to uh, respond to. And he said, the problem here is this. He said that lots of trucks, he said, some guys, we've been going there. He said, it's not uncommon to go there five times a day. Oh and, uh, and he said, uh, uh, the problem is that we're, we're, you know, we're speeding through intersections with lights uh, uh, flashing and sirens wailing. And uh, we're responding, at least some uh, trucks are responding on the basis that it's a legitimate emergency. And so anyway, uh, he said, and, and they won't stop. He said, they, they, uh, you know, the orders from command is to continue to respond this way to this person when this person needs to be somewhere else where her needs can be better met. And not mm-hmm. by not by firemen who are being deployed and are no longer available to, while they're while they're going to her place to respond to legitimate concerns and to make matters worse they didn't because it was happening so often the the the, the responding to her would would actually um, uh, would draw down so much on the nearest fire station that they would be in a bad way if they had maybe two other emergencies at the same time so sure. they started to to share the workload around more widely. And so that meant that people were coming, trucks were coming from further away and going through more lights and intersections to get there. So anyway, I, so I got, uh, I eventually uh, uh, requested from the city and, and got um, the uh, numbers uh, that showed for the first few months 
of 2022. They'd been there like 300 and something times. Oh my gosh. Yes. And so anyway, uh, but, but the star had concerns that we not identify the person or even the person's gender. And, uh, and that we be very gentle in how, because, you know, there were uh, clearly there were probably some mental health issues at play mm -hmm. as well. And, uh, and so anyway, we, uh, uh, and then the fire, uh, the fire, so I got the fire chief on the phone, uh, Matthew, uh, Pegg, I think his name is, and, or maybe it was the acting fire chief at the time. I think Matthew Pegg was, uh, uh, was deployed with the COVID response. But anyway, I got the acting fire chief on the phone and, and he defended it and said, listen, we will respond to every call as if it's a legitimate emergency until we know otherwise. Mm. And, uh, and so I turned to my whole card at that point, because basically they were saying, we're going to keep doing this. And that was yep. what the, that was the basis of the complaint from, from firemen that were doing this on a day-to-day -day basis and knew what was going on at that apartment. And so anyway, I called John Tory, and, uh, and to the mayor's credit, he will once in a while call me up. He'll read a story that I've written. For instance, when the city ordered the 90-odd-year-old couple over in the West End to start cutting the boulevard in front of their house, which really wasn't their boulevard, or mm -hmm. face fines, John read that story, called me and said, I told them, just cut the grass, you idiots. <laughs> anyway, so he called me, and he'll do that once in a while. Anyway, I called him. And he came right on the phone for me and I explained the situation. He said, that's intolerable. And uh, anyway, he started asking questions about it. And it wasn't long. And oh, and we got some, uh, uh, we got some additional numbers at that point. By the spring, the fire department had been there at least 500 times. And think about that in terms of resources. You can quantify and put a number on every time the city has to send a truck out with, sure. with, with four firemen on it, a crew captain and three firemen. Uh, and so, I mean, we, uh, who knows how much money we, the, the, the city, us taxpayers spent responding to this woman's needs. And, uh, anyway, once the mayor got involved and started asking questions, it wasn't long before Toronto housing, which really wasn't responsible for this situation and other, uh, stakeholders, if you want to use that term, we're able to get her into an assisted living facility and uh, end this uh, madness with the fire department going there. Some days they would go there as many as 10 times. Well, like, like I said before, you just can't make this stuff up. No, to the and, average person and, like myself, it's a clear case of abuse of 911. And have... that's what we thought too. However, because the situation was complicated, and, 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 and nobody was, nobody really wanted until, until it got exposed in the star, nobody really wanted to grab the ball and run with it and resolve it. So they just kind of sloughed it off on the fire department. Along the way, I learned that the police had stopped going there and the ambulance, the reason it all fell to the fire department was because she, at one point they were sending ambulances mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was just too, too much of a strain on, on the resources. So I guess they felt the fire department was the most able to respond to it. But the reason I raised that, as a as a, a a point, Andrew is is to let you know that once in a while, one of the gratifying things about being the fixer is you can really affect change in mm -hmm. in, in a positive way. So let me ask you: dialing three one one is supposed to be Toronto's best way for residents to bring issues to the city's attention. Is Toronto's three one one service working or a mess? Uh, I asked that question two years ago, uh, <clears throat> because. Uh, I, I, I'd written a story where a 
I don't even remember the story now, but I got this curt note from one of the city's legions of communicators. And uh, the note said basically that the, you know, that, that we have a process here and that process is 311 and that person should have called 311 almost scolding me you know mm-hmm. like, like why aren't you sending these people to 311 so i said I, I i i quoted that person i didn't name them but i quoted them and i said does this reflect i asked the readers does this reflect your experience uh, do you do do you find 311 to be an effective means of resolving problems with the city and i was expecting to write a story that's where people all manner of people would say no it sucks it's terrible that's why we call you yeah and i was quite surprised and 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 actually happy to find out that the satisfaction level in my very imprecise poll was actually pretty good mm-hmm. and uh, and a lot of people said yes i have had reasonable success calling 311 to resolve things and so uh, 311 i uh, my my verdict on three one one is yes it it is reasonably effective they have a, a a reasonably good system in place to move the complaint along from the entry point which is the operator at three one one or the person reading the email to somebody who can do something about it and so yeah I think I think we get we get relatively good value from three one one and let's but talk I've, about something but, related I guess to how the city deals with things John Tory. Is he doing a good job? And what are your feelings about him as he seems to be on track to win a third term as Toronto's mayor in the upcoming elections? Uh, look, on the whole, yeah, I think John does a good job. Uh, I, I don't, uh, I know that there's people that think he's just a little too cozy with the corporate world, and he is. I mean, they're as old school, the Tory family, and blue blood as, you, as it gets in Toronto. And uh, and yes, I, I I think that John is I think I think he probably uh, sees a, a more good in the corporate world than a lot of other people do, because of his connections to it and you know his his role as an advisor to the Rogers Board is an example of that and the questions that have arisen from it. However, in in terms of day to day representation of the city the big picture stuff that requires a thoughtful mayor. I think John has done very well. And uh, and I should point out that there was a time I didn't feel that way about him. I, when I worked at City Hall, I, I became pretty good friends with David Miller. And David Miller ran against John Tory when he was first elected back in the, oh, I guess it was 2003 he was elected. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I covered that election and uh, and I thought John was kind of stogy, and 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 he still is kind of stogy actually. But I thought John was kind of stogy, and David was much more progressive and much more uh, the man for the times. And he did win, uh, yeah. but uh, but anyway, uh, I think he won two terms actually. And uh, uh, but so I, I was you know, because I was personally acquainted with David and friendly with him. I thought he was you know the the guy, and that John Tory was a bad fit. Well, after Rob Ford, I think everybody wanted, uh, uh, you know, staid, quiet, competent leadership on the part of our mayor. We wanted a mayor that could see the big picture. Rob, Rob might have been very good at service, and I knew Rob, and was mm-hmm. one of the only people at the start he would talk to for those years when he was mayor and and would uh, and had frozen out the start. But uh, but anyway, John, I think uh, was who we were looking for at the time, and nobody's come along that has fired the imagination of the public since then. And I think that's why John probably 
win a, a third term unopposed. Now he told me, because we chat, as I said, we've chatted uh, from time to time and I've been friendly with him. And he told me his wife didn't really want him to run for a third term. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, and I asked him about this the last time I talked to him, which was over the, the fire trucks. And he said, yeah, he said, but I feel like I have unfinished business. And I think he's 67, so he's not too old for it, or maybe 68. Uh, so, yeah, to, to, to my long-winded point here is, yeah, I think John's a pretty good mayor, and I think he's given us the kind of leadership that we expect. And uh, I don't see him losing unless somebody really good comes along real soon. No, me neither. He's had a very steady hand during a very difficult time during COVID. And just yeah. as you say, that makes sense that he would see it as unfinished business. He wants a shot when we're at our full strength. I got to ask you, Jack, with your role, as you say, the Toronto Star is very good at bringing things to light <clears throat> that aren't being properly paid attention to. So when a resident brings an issue up to you and they don't go through 311, or more probably they did and didn't get an answer, when you carry the ball and someone at the bureaucracy or at the city sees your number come up, the fixer's phoning me, are they more likely to jump on it because they know they got to get it fixed, you're on it? Or are they more likely to say, i got to deal with this guy again. I'm going to let it go to voicemail. Uh, it used to be that way. I'll tell you how it used to work. Um, when I started uh, the fixer in 2004, uh, I would get, uh, I had uh, personal contact with like just to, uh, uh, as an example, the transportation department, uh, roads managers, one of the key people in terms of stuff that happens within the road allowance, and that can be a lot of things I write about, uh, would be a, a departmental roads manager, a, a district roads manager. And, uh, and I had at one time, I had all their cell phone numbers and I had more or less agreements with them that anything that a problem I had, if all they had to do is let them know and it would be fixed. And uh, because they understood they looked good if they got it fixed and they, and they, and they were responsive to my request. And then um, all about 2016 or 17, uh, and, and there was a change in, uh, in the corporate communication strategy is the way, I guess the best way to put it. And then I started to be told that, no, you can't call that guy who's in charge of parks in the, uh, in, in the Scarborough district or the Etobicoke mm. district. Now you have to phone the communicator who represents the uh, transportation services. We'll have their own communications guy as part of the city's bigger communications bureaucracy. And it is huge. It's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, but uh, and, and, and we will take your question and we will relay it to these same people that you used to call. In fact, one guy told me, I called him, he says, I, I said, I, I, I got a scolding after I talked to you and you quoted me from a communicator who called me up and said, how dare you talk to him? He's supposed to go through me. So anyway, so there was a time when it worked that way. And then, uh, and then uh, I started to have to deal with the person who, the media person for transportation services or parks or whatever department it happened to be. And, uh, and then after COVID, there was some, uh, once COVID set in, there was some further realignment of the communications functions at the city. And then I was told, you no longer deal with Johnny there at Transportation Services or, or Helen at Parks. Now you deal with the communications department. You use the generic email address to oh, send your, 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 in other words, I was pushed farther out still 
from the people that can affect uh, changes right away. I used to write, well, you know, like Joe Blow at Transportation Services, and then I'd say, and he always gets it done for me. He's looking into, you know, it says this will be fixed tomorrow kind of thing. Yeah. And now I say, I would once in a while, because I wasn't very happy about this being pushed further and further away from the people that, uh, that, uh, that, can, that can do something about it, so, that, so as to, in my mind, uh, so as to justify this huge behemoth of communications staff. Uh, so I, I, I came to refer to it derisively in a couple columns that, so okay, so these, these were the questions I need answered. So I poured it into the big media funnel at City Hall and let it trickle down and see what came back. Because mm-hmm. that, that's what it was. It was basically, it, it occurred to me that it was just a big funnel where you pour your questions into me and every other person that works in media in Toronto uh, who, have, who asks the city about this, that, or the other. Uh, we're we're all at the same entry point now, where I used to be two rings in from there. Yeah. So well, it's made it's it's made the job harder, and it's yep. made it less personal. Because before, people told me one of the things they liked. They said, "Now I know the name, at least, of the guy who gets his stuff done." Yep. Not like well, that. Effectively, now. the bureaucracy has come in and treated you like you got to phone three one one the same way everyone exactly. else. Exactly. Exactly. Now, to be fair. The communicators at at the uh, city are professional and good, and uh, and they're responsive to my questions, but uh, but it creates this layer of I, what I would say in many cases and certainly not all, but in many cases this un- unnecessary layer of people that I have to go through when I could just go to the you know like to the like like as Mel Lastman once said uh, uh, about uh, Mike Harris, he says. I don't want to talk to the uh, monkey. I want to talk to the organ grinder. Yep, <laughs> and uh, and that's my situation here. And 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 but anyway, I'm I'm used to it now. And because I do so much fewer fixers now be, uh, uh, than I did when I was a full time staff reporter, it's not as big a deal. I wonder, Jack, do you consider yourself a competitor or a what they call a frenemy? to other local investigative reporters, such as Global TV's Sean O'Shea or CTV's Pat Foran. Do you commiserate with them on city issues and annoyances or? I don't talk to those guys, but I, I don't certainly don't consider them enemies uh, uh, or, or, or even competitors really, because we're, we're dealing with different audiences. And uh, I think Pat Foran is more of a consumer oriented uh, mm-hmm. guy. Uh, and, uh, and my, my, uh, my job is to to resolve problems with municipal services. Uh, what I like about what what is done on Global and on CTV is that they have sort of fine tuned uh, the the uh, proposition that there is somebody there that can look into your problems and to, and and do something about it. Everything comes full circle because that used to yes. be the, the pitch. The bureaucracy got in the way, and maybe hopefully we're getting back to that as well. Someone can stand up for the little guy. I want to also talk, Jack, as we come to the end of our time, about your passion for poker. What is your involvement in the card game of poker? <laughs> well, uh, everybody or a lot of people have hobbies, and uh, my hobby uh, uh, is poker uh, and and horse racing. I, I I like action. I'm not a big better, uh, but uh, I uh, I like to bet on horses and have been uh, have liked to do that since I was a kid, and the poker. Uh, happened uh, well after the racing. Uh, we used to have a little 
poker game when I was a teenager in Port Dover. And then when I, I got working at the Star, we used to have a little poker game. And uh, and I thought I was pretty sharp at poker. Yep. So anyway, along come in the, in the mid-90s, uh, we used to have these three-day charity casinos in Toronto. They're long, long gone now. And they would operate three days at a time. And one or two charities would get the net proceeds from the three-day charity casino where they would have some blackjack tables and they would have three poker tables. And uh, and so I would see these ads in the back of the Toronto Sun for these, because these roving little bandit black, uh, blackjack joints was basically what they were, or would mm-hmm. say now featuring Hold'em Poker. I didn't even know what Hold'em Poker was. And so I would I, I, I noticed these ads and finally I asked somebody and they said, well, you only get two cards. Of course, we were used to playing games where you get a mid full of cards. And I said, well, that sounds really weird. Two cards. And then there's other cards that they come at intervals across the middle of the table. And you use those cards with your two cards. And everybody uses those cards with their two cards to make the best poker hand. And you bet along the way. And so finally, I went to a charity casino and gave it a try. Because I said, well, I, you know, I'm quite a player. I'll, I'll figure this out pretty quick. And anyway, I'm, I'll never forget this. It was limit poker then. Not no limit like is the case now. It was all limit poker. And the limits, there were two there were ten and twenty dollar bet limits, or five and ten dollar bet limits. So I went to the five and five ten game, and I was amazed at how fast it went. Professional dealer, ten people at the table, a lot of players, and uh, and I I I lost four hundred bucks, and I thought, boy, that was fun. And then <laughs> I went back another time. I lost another four hundred. I said that was fun, and then I started playing hold'em in our home game. Uh, so I could learn it a little better and I played it for a few months and then I went back and then I won back most of my 800 bucks and, and then I started going regularly and uh, and I'll, I'll never forget there was an afternoon where I won about 1200 bucks in a $5, $10 game this would have been like 1996 or early 7 and I, I'll never forget thinking man you've got this game figured out yeah yeah and wow wow you're really knocking them dead and then I kept going and I kept lo- Then I started losing and lose and lose and lose. And I said, wow, this is even worse than racing. Yeah. And, and so, so anyway, I, I, uh, and then I figured out you're a terrible player. The reason, cause I've been watching these other guys, you know, who always seem to have a lot of chips. And I said, well, they hardly play any hands. They fold most of the time. And even when they get involved in a hand, if you know, they're often folding. Right. And so I figured out, Folding is probably a pretty good strategy. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so anyway, I, I found a smaller stakes game out in Oshawa, a $2, $5 game. And, I, and until the charity casinos ended in the spring of 1998, I kept driving out there. And I started to learn the game. And then, uh, then they closed the charity casinos with the intention of the Tory government at the time, with the intention of opening these small kind of corner permanent casinos like they had at the time in British Columbia. But they allowed municipalities to opt out, and many did, and then they sort of lost their nerve going into their second election, and they scrapped the whole thing. So it left us in Toronto with this huge appetite for poker that had been developed by the charities, because on any given day, if you added up all the charities operating in the GTA, and if they each had three tables of poker, we had 50-odd tables of poker all the time, and they were all rocking and full. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and so now we had none. So, of course, the underground world j- jumped up and thrived after that and continues to thrive and to this day. And so I play poker, I guess I, I guess I could politely say in private games. <laughs> yes, in and, private. In private games. Uh, and because they do have poker at, at the casino in Port Perry or in Brantford or in Niagara or in Rama. But we have no poker here in Toronto or even close. So there is this thriving underground world of poker. And that's where I play, and uh, and I and I, I I do okay, hold my own. Well, certainly, uh, two thousand and three was this big revolutionary change when Chris Moneymaker, an amateur who had earned his seat online, somehow turned forty dollars into two point five million by winning the World Series of Poker's main event. Everyone flooded into poker. No limit hold'em was the game. So you were playing well before that, and I'm sure with this yeah. revolutionary change, suddenly tons of players to play against. Well, but it, but it, it, it was also a challenge for people like me because we cut our teeth on limit poker, and no limit is an entirely different game, and the strategies are different, the way you use your chips are different, and, uh, and it's a much more creative aggressive game than limit poker and but i had to it was a big learning curve for me because i had already been an experienced limit hold'em player and so anyway i i had to relearn the game again and but i realized very quickly that's where all the young dumb money was coming into the game (laughs) yeah and and i i'm i'll I'll be honest with you i'm not a guy who wants to challenge myself by playing with the best players i want to pick the low-hanging fruit i want to play with donkeys and bums I yep. want to play with drug dealers who've got money to burn, and yep. uh, and and those are the kind of people, honestly, that show up late at night at uh, yeah. at private games in Toronto. Well, as they say, if you can't identify who the the, uh, the, the fish is, is, you're it. Yeah, if you, if you sit in the game the for half an hour and you can't find the fish, you're it. <laughs> That's right, Jack. Tell us about your new gig writing casino content for North Star Bets. How did that come about, and what are you doing for them? Well, uh, I, I got a, I, I, a a classmate of mine at Ryerson is a fellow named Perry Lefko, and uh, and I've known him since uh, since Ryerson, although we hadn't been in much touch in recent years. And but I'm Facebook friends with him. And anyway, he was uh, uh, he got in touch with me. And he said, you know, I've got all this work, uh, and he said, and I don't know a lot about casino games, uh, and neither did I, to be honest with you, because. If, if I go to a casino, I would never go there unless there was a poker room at the casino. And then I'll walk past all the other games to get to the poker because casinos are full of games that are tilted in favor of the house. And I don't yes. really want to try and challenge the odds. And so he said, uh, would you, you know, would you be interested in doing some of this work? And uh, and I said, well, I guess so. Why not? And so I ended up talking with somebody who was in charge of content for North Star Gaming because all of these new websites that, that were just approved uh, last spring to go into business uh, were, were all of a sudden trying to get people's attention. And, uh, and the, the, the interest for me in North Star wasn't just, well, this, you know, we'll hire you to do some one-off pieces for us, but it was the same people that have uh, bought the Toronto Star. And uh, so there was a, a some synergies and uh, crossover there with the star you'll notice on the star website they promote north star gaming yes. pretty heavily and so anyway that made it a little more uh, comfortable for me and uh, and and i i do know you know a bit about 
your range of casino games, uh, but I'm not a, a player of those games. But Perry was even less of a player of those games. Perry is much more of a guy that uh, writes about uh, uh, sports betting. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's uh, that's probably the biggest component of North Star and all of these uh, online gaming sites that have all of a sudden become legal uh, here in Ontario uh, is uh, the, the sports gambling because, you know, they can offer individual one-off, one-game bets, and aside from all manner of proposition bets. And Perry uh, was much more uh, a sports guy. Perry was a, a sports writer for and a racing writer for the Toronto Sun for probably 20 years or so. And uh, so anyway, uh, I said yes, and Perry hooked me up. And uh, so I did some stories for them and uh, tried to write them, you know, kind of loose and off the cuff and in a friendly, inviting way. And and uh, and I enjoyed that work. And uh, and I won't be surprised if I do some more for them. Oh, well, that'll be great. Jack, as we close up, what is the best way for listeners to contact you about city issues requiring the fixer's attention? Uh, my email address, as I said, we I, we used to have a phone line, uh, and I used to you could you could also used to be able to get me on Twitter because the Star encouraged its staff people. I I by I, I should explain I took a buyout in 2016, and but we worked out a contract uh, where I continued to do the fixer three days a week, and uh, I'm doing it even less now. But uh, but anyway, I'm still doing it, and uh, and we no longer have a phone number because I don't have an editorial assistant to deal with the public, and I can't take all those calls. So my email address, jlakey, J-L-A-K-E-Y, at thestar.ca is the best way to reach me. Excellent. Well, listeners, when you have an issue, the fixer is still on and ready to help you. Still in business. Jack, I, I want to thank you for your time today. No problem. And uh, I wish you a good fall and, and continued success. I'm, I'm, I, I, need, uh, I need the encouragement. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. All right. And, and to the listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of the fixer, Jack Lakey, I'm Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.